Hey, it's Melissa Rivers, and welcome to Group Text. Stay tuned for a new episode. This very special episode of Group Text is dedicated to Maya Miller. May she rest in peace. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Group Text. Uh, today, we're, we're, we have a really interesting topic. I got a lot of press when I said in an interview that I would not rule out adopting a child at this point in my life. Um, so I have a lot of questions and, and it picked up a lot of traction in the news and or in the celebrity news. So it is honestly something that I've been thinking about for a very long time. Right before my mother died almost six years ago, she said to me in one of our last conversations, Cooper is launched it's time. And Sabrina has her own adoption story. I do. Her daughter was adopted, but in an interesting situation in the sense that it was an interfamily adoption. So we have a ton of questions. We have an amazing guest with us to discuss all this. Please welcome Dr. Jennifer Bliss, Director of Adoptions and Foster Care at Vista Del Mar. Welcome. Thank you for having me. And Vista Del Mar and Dee Hirsch, Mental Health Services and Suicide Prevention, of which I'm on the board, are part not partners, but affiliated through sharing clients and business models and all that kind of stuff. So I'm very excited to, to meet you. I'm so excited to be here. So just explain to us exactly what your job is. Well, Vista Del Mar has a continuum of services as a full campus and agency. In my department, we have a foster care, foster to adopt program, a domestic infant adoption program, and an international adoption services program. So we cover all three aspects of the avenues in which somebody may choose to adopt. Why would someone come to you? Well, The reputation precedes itself for being a hub and a community for adoption services and support uh, since 1947 when the adoption department opened. So there are generations of people that know Vista as someone they can, as an agency they can come to, not only for the adoption process, but ongoing support, because as we know, adoption is a lifetime journey and things come up. We're also a nonprofit and stay on the forefront of ethical adoption practice as things mature and progress. Because it is a lifelong process. Yes. Yes, it is. It is. How did you become interested in the field? I think it's probably um, in my blood a little bit. I didn't think I was going to wind up in adoption, but then I look back and I made my little brothers play orphanage when I was little. Which I thought was totally normal. Okay. Okay. Um, And I actually was working for the Department of Children and Family Services as a reunification worker after grad school. Um, And I heard about this opportunity to get into nonprofit adoptions. And I thought it would be a nice segue to try something new and something that I felt was really important to be done right. Because both prospective adoptive parents and women who are thinking of making an adoption plan are extremely vulnerable populations. And so I had a strong belief in ethical practice of giving services to vulnerable populations. And so it really 
um, resonated with me. And I transferred over almost 20 years ago now, and I've stayed in the field. It's just been a wonderful fit. How difficult is it to navigate the adoption process from both sides? From the agency and then also with families, right? Is that what you mean, Melissa? No, I mean like for the people who want to adopt, plus these women who are considering putting their their children up Ah, for adoption. Because I would assume it's very complicated on both sides. It is. It is. Um, As far as for women who are thinking of making an adoption plan, it's really important where they're getting that information from because different professionals practice differently and there's different philosophical beliefs and they run the risk of not receiving the services that are necessarily in their best interest because they're not usually the one paying the fee. They're never the one paying the fee, right? So it's important and hopefully they wind up working with somebody who can look at their best interest equal to that of everybody else involved. Once and hopefully if they are connected with a professional who will help them do that, then it becomes really important throughout the process to be able to understand where their motivation is coming from. Because if someone has motivations that are very temporary, like, oh, my parents will get mad at me if they find out that I got pregnant. That's a very temporary issue. It's applying a very permanent solution to a very temporary issue versus I'm not at the right time in my life or I want something different for this child in the circumstances I'm in. So there's a lot of delicate issues to parcel out to help someone decide if they're really meant to become a birth mom. As far as the prospective adoptive parents, it is very delicate too, because you want to make sure that you're taking every step and every decision you make in this very interesting journey that could go many different directions. You want to make sure that you're making decisions in a way that you're going to be proud of in retrospect, because this will be your child's story. So it's also important to maintain perspective through each juncture of, will I be proud to tell my child the decision I made at this juncture? Which can be hard sometimes, especially if there's ambivalence on the part of the prospective birth mother that pops up and how that's dealt with. Give me an example of that. Um, of the, uh, because I would think if, yes. if someone's in this process, I would think they would not be ambivalent. The adoptive parents or the prospective birth parent? The prospective birth parent. There's, yeah, no, but there, there actually is a lot of ambivalence about it sometimes leading up to the placement because even though logically it could make a lot of sense to make this adoption plan, a lot of times the heart betrays the person because it's not that they're not maternal that they're making this plan. It's that there are factual things about their life that make it incompatible with the childhood they want this little baby to have. So depending also, and usually people don't get pats on the back for making this plan, right? Right. So if they're pregnant and they're moving around in their community or going to church or whatever that is, they're getting a lot of noise if they are being public about their choice. And if they're not being public about their choice, they're having to navigate things like, are you so excited? Are you having a shower? What are you going to name the baby? So it's complicated and it's difficult. And a lot of times people have no qualms about sharing their own opinions about the choice of making an adoption plan. So that along with the heart and the love that's already growing for this being that's living inside you can get very 
murky at different times, understandably. And once the baby's born, all those things come up all over again and decision needs to be made again. That always seems to be the most, for my friends who have adopted, that always seems to be the most terrifying part that women, the, the adopt, the birth parents or the birth mother has a certain amount of time to change her mind. Right. You get to that crossroad. And like she said, if you go through the decision process, you know, probably emotionally all over again. And also I would think, do you find with the adoptive parents, you're almost scared to let your walls down? Yeah. I mean, we call it guarded optimism, right? Right. And it's a hard thing because with the relationship that you create with the birth mother, a lot of times you're going to the doctor's appointments with her, um, talking on the phone or helping her out in different ways because most of the time she's making this plan because her life has things in it that need help or are not as stable as she wants, which is what's propelling her to choose this plan. So um, it can be very difficult on the side of the adoptive parents to maintain the perspective of this baby is still her baby until those relinquishments are signed and acknowledged. And so as much as they want to let their guard down and just believe this is happening, it's important to remember at what stage we're at. And then that's balanced with wanting to be open-hearted and excited and invested in this process. So this prospective birth mother understands how important being a parent is to this family, because that's going to help her place a child when they know that parenting is going to be a priority and they're excited about it and loving this child. That's those types of moments are reassuring to the birth mother that she's making the right choice by choosing this family. There are lots of different types of adoption. Um, And one of the ones I'm always curious about is open adoption versus closed private adoption. What are the two, what are the differences and how do you choose? Okay. This is a very good question. So in the adoption world, um, private adoption can still be open adoption. Okay. See, already I didn't know that. Yes, yes, yes. Um, So private adoption usually refers to attorney adoption, but also um, generic world out there, it basically distinguishes it from maybe would be be a foster care adoption, right? So there's agency and private adoption and independent adoption. All that is about voluntary placement, about women who are choosing to make an adoption plan and place their child versus foster care or foster care to adopt, which is a different story. Now, since we're going to talk about the voluntary placement world, that's where um, the question about how open would it be? What's healthy for the child? What do I want my life to look like after the placement? Right. Um, So the practice of adoption has changed in the past 20 years dramatically. And even before then, it started to change. It actually started to change in the 80s where uh, adoption, the veil was lifted uh, because people didn't need to hold that secret anymore. Um, for society issues of stigma. It was okay to have a child out of wedlock. It was okay um, to- Yeah, it, it, the world, it, society changed. Right. It wasn't shameful. Right. And so social workers started looking at, okay, well, now that the stigma is not an issue for being able to be marriage material or things like that, let's look at what's healthiest for everybody. And that's where people started to realize that opening things up and being more honest with children about- their history, who are their relatives, 
actually winds up being healthier for them in the long run emotionally. And we didn't have these big dramatic reunions of people trying to catch up for lost time or identity crisis or all that acting out behavior that comes up when people feel like they don't have a right to their knowledge about where they came from. So open adoption has moved in that direction and it continues progressively um, to get practiced even better as people learn the best way to do things for all three parties involved. The adoption triad is the birth parents, the adoptive parents and the child, which everybody's best interest actually lies in more openness. Um, so right now over 95% of voluntary adoptions are open. I have some. Really? Yes. Yes. Because there are very few cases where a closed adoption is actually healthier for the child. Um, when is a closed, when is a closed adoption a better choice? Usually when it's the birth mother who's choosing for her personal reasons that she wants to be private about the adoption. And again, then this comes into a lot of times there's stigma involved or fears of people finding out in her community that she placed. Um, and so that becomes important. And even in that scenario, we usually have a conversation with the birth mother that if it over time becomes important to the child to know who she is, is she open to making that connection even privately? Yeah. And I've never had someone say no. It's a, it's a hard, um, it's a hard situation. I was going to say, Sabrina, will you tell your story? Because you kind of fall in the middle. I do. So our uh, adoption was a kinship adoption because uh, Curtis and I, adopted my biological niece, my sister's daughter, when she was two and a half. And um, it was, we went through an attorney. And so we really had to turn over every stone, dot every I, cross every T. And we were doing it uh, in between states, California versus Florida. So you've got different laws um, that govern that state versus here. And so our attorney had to, you know, figure out the magic of how to make that happen. Um, we were cautious too with my sister. We didn't know if at the last moment she would change her mind because we wanted to offer, you know, extend ourselves to offer help because she needed it. She wasn't in an ideal situation. I already had, she had two children. One was already in the system and we didn't want this one to go in the system. And then, so we really went through the process. We had social services come out. They interviewed. I had to get references letters from both Melissa and Joan and pretty much a host of different people. They came out. They had to do like the in-home inspection. So even though this was family, we still were treated as if we were not family. And so, which was fine um, to go through all the legality uh, aspects of it. And then also for us, you know, Curtis and I came to that crossroad of, so are we going to share with this child? She's still small now, so she's not getting it all. But are we going to share with her later on that, um, you know, how the situation is? We never concealed, for, concealed from her from the beginning that we were her aunt and uncle, but we gave her the choice. We said, if you want to call us mommy and daddy, that is your choice. And we always let her know. We always included my sister because I never wanted her. Like you said, it's very important for the child and their history. Later on, you don't want it to be so convoluted. They're already, you know, in some sort of dismay because they are adopted. They're trying to figure out in their head what was wrong with me? What was going on with the situation? Was I not loved? 
there is like a host of different things in a child's imagination. So we wanted to try to do our very best to say, no, this is who we are and this is who my sister is to you. She is your biological parent. And so we always included her. It wasn't a hard, I mean, it wasn't an easy thing. And I get why some adoptive families choose not to have any association because it becomes kind of clouded for the child. You know, we were like the parents and then my sister was like this trophy mom, you know, on the side. And then there was my nephew who was in the system. So it becomes really kind of um, challenging um, for a family. Um, But you have to be united in how you approach it with the child because it really, really does affect them. Especially in your situation where you and Curtis really were the parents, and that includes having to say no. Right. And things like that. And then your sister would sort of swoop in and be, yes, 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 yes. Right, right. Which, as a teenager, they love that. They love that playing off everybody. Yeah, it's it's it was interesting. I, I'll say that. I mean, you know, thank God everything is kind of, it, it all settled down and we all, really decided that the most important thing was for this child, you know, to give her the most love um, and, and, and validation because that's, that's huge. That was huge for us. I can't speak for everybody else, but that was huge for us because with our daughter, she still was like, well, but why, you know, there was still that, but why, you know, if she was poor, it would have been okay for me to be with her, but why, you know, they don't, she's not, she wasn't able to completely process that this was really done for your best, you know, welfare. And that's, that's kind of hard sometimes for a child emotionally and intellectually to try to merge and make sense of it all. Can I ask a few questions? Sure. Um, so your sister, is she, is she, if you asked her, if somebody out in the community asked her, is she on board with this plan that you adopted? She Well, my sister was in a really, she was in a crazy time in her life. And when we, we, okay, so we had gone to a family reunion. I called Melissa and I said, guess what we got for the weekend? She's like, you got a puppy? I was like, uh, no. Yeah. So Ray um, called and she goes, guess what we got? I'm like, a puppy? <laughs> She's like, I'm like, no. no. Well, why would I guess child? So we went to a family <laughs> reunion and we saw that my sister was struggling with the two children that she had. And so my husband, God bless his soul, if he could give birth, he would. We had gone through in vitro, we had you know, done several things. And so he said, you know, it would be really nice if we could help your sister. And so he said, well, let's take her for, let's take her home for a little while. So we thought, okay, well, this will help my sister get my nephew into school. And my, my niece at that time would come in and, you know, would provide some sort of support. So after about three months, almost three to six months after um, our daughter was here, my husband was like, oh, my God, I couldn't imagine life without her. We have to, you know, check with your sister and see how she feels. And so my sister was like, you know what? It would be very, very helpful if you could. And at the time, she wanted us to take our nephew as well. And we were like, we were so just blown over. You know, there's a two and a half year old and then an almost five, four and a half, five-year-old. And we were, our heads were spinning. Um, And so we said, just give us a beat. And by the time we had 
uh, got the adoption in for my niece, my nephew was put into the system. So then we were chasing that and he was already in the foster care. We were chasing that. So the only thing that we could do at that moment is just ask um, the uh, social worker to make sure that in his files and in his records, he knew that he had a family somewhere that loved him and a sister. So this this was a really complex situation. So even though it was within our family, it was still very, very complex. Right. Um, and then she had the loss of her son involuntarily after she right. placed the daughter with you. So it makes it hard for her to then voluntarily choose a permanent plan for her mm -hmm. daughter. And so I think that there's there's so many layers to what's going on with the dynamics there, because as much as there's a part of her that supports her daughter being with you, it sounds like there's a part of her that struggles with it too. Right, there was the entire time. Our daughter's 20, she'll be 25 this year. Oh, but, I didn't catch that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah she's, she'll, she'll be 25 this year. We, you know, so, but I will say to you- And a functional in, member of society. Yes, she is. And it, but I will definitely say to you in this process, that was a challenge for my sister. It totally was the challenge. And so again, I get why adoptive parents are like, no, we're going to put a pause on that. We don't want to have, you know, any integration with the biological family Be because it, it can, you know, pose several different issues. Well, I think that in highlighting your situation, it's really hard to make openness work because openness works. And you said something very astute. When the alliance is between the biological parents, if there's both, and the adoptive parents, open adoption works best and really in a functional, healthy way. When that click is solid, that dynamic and that synergy is there and the child cannot triangulate. Di divide and conquer. Right. And <laughs> that doesn't sound like that was your situation. It sounds like you dealt with um, mixed messages as far as um, could she go to to your sister and get a different answer, right? And that's where the counseling comes in because and and the difference between I would say a private independent agency adoption where a woman is choosing the family placing, and the adoptive parents when the child's eight and says, "I want to stay up later. I live with my real mom. She would let me." Right. There should be confidence on the part of the adoptive parents where they could say, "Really." Why don't we call Jessica and ask her? Because they know Jessica's going to say, "Listen to your parents." Right. And I'm not, sh and and that's the way open adoption works in a in best case scenario. In best well, case, in a planned, voluntary placement. Mm -hmm. In your case, it was more complicated, where it probably would have been best to have more professional support counseling mm -hmm. around that family dynamic and for your sister, so she can really maintain the perspective of how her answers impact. Sure. Your daughter, right? Absolutely. So that's where, when I talk about adoption as a journey, in and because yours is actually much more similar to a foster care to adoption dynamic, and and I would say extremely common in kinship adoptions, which is a foster care less voluntary dynamic. Um, that's where open adopt. That's where adoption is a journey because as much as it was healthy for your daughter to have that connection counseling and support for everybody from an outside perspective. So you don't have to be the bad guy would have been so valuable. Right. How do you, 
how important is it to know the history of the birth parents? And I only speak about this because my mother had a friend. Um, the child's now an adult who adopted, and it was not disclosed to him that he had that this that his son had fetal alcohol syndrome and had a multitude of problems throughout his life. Now, when her friend adopted, he would, you know, it was supposed to be this healthy baby boy. How important is learning those things and how do you make sure that that is not going on behind your back, so to speak? Right. Well, I think there is uh, more than one answer to that. Um, again, one, it comes down at a basic level to the adoption professional you choose. And do they function in an ethical way for everybody's best interests? Because the blessing is, is that there's an adoptive family out there for almost every child, as long as the birth mother is on board too. Right. So if you, if a woman's saying, listen, I'm carrying this child, there might be special needs or this is what's going on. As long as she's upfront, forthright and transparent, there's an adoptive family available. That's the beauty in the dynamic that we have right now where there are families waiting. Unfortunately, if it's rushed or if the prospective birth mother is not um, educated in a way where she knows that she can be honest without judgment because the most important thing is to find a family who's going to be committed to this child. Right. Because if she's making this voluntary plan, it's not in her best interest to have a family match with her who's going to back out last minute. That's her nightmare. As much as we talk about the adoptive parents worrying about the birth mother changing her mind, when the birth, but when this woman saw this positive pregnancy test, her life turned upside down in a horrible, right. anxiety-ridden, fearful way. Making an adoption plan and choosing and matching with adoptive parents, I'm not saying it solved her problems, but it it turned her life back up again in a way that there's a plan, there's a bigger picture. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be okay. So she has the same fears adoptive parents have that the adoptive parents are going to last minute say, oh, this is not the right baby for us. Or maybe they're, she's worried they'll say that she's not cute enough for something that, again, we talk about imaginations and how they fill in with dramatic, you know, get, fill in the gaps with dramatics. Um, it's in her best interest to be transparent too. So she matches with a family that at the hospital, everybody's on the same page and there isn't a concern that they're going to change their mind either. Right. So but how do you, how do you make sure that the, the adoption agency is reputable. Is How reputable and that this woman is telling the truth. Right. Well, the part about the telling the truth, what we have experienced is educating the, the the prospective birth mother about that, that we want to make sure that you match with a family that is committed to this child and whatever struggle you have, there's no judgment. The drive for them to have a family be committed and not what she might say is bail on her last minute is extremely motivational. And we don't find a lot of secrecy around what's going on behind the scenes because the risk is too high for her that something will pop up at the birth and then she'll lose the adoptive family last minute. And now what? So there is that element of motivation to be transparent, knowing that one, she won't be judged and two, she's going to be matched with the right family. That's going to be, committed. but there's no guarantee that someone's being transparent. I mean, are you allowed to, if, drug test someone? Are you allowed to do all these things from the adoptive parent's side? It depends on the um, adoption professional you use. I think the highest risk of the unknowns wind up being in a last minute situation where a woman thinks she's certain 
you know, far along. She winds up, she's a little farther. She goes into labor early and she hasn't made an adoption plan. So the hospital social worker scrambling, they call us or someone else. We find parents. It's a last minute match and we don't have any time History. to work together. Right? right. Because if somebody's struggling with sobriety and we're working with them for six to eight weeks or three months, we know. There's too much that happens in the functioning of a human being if they're struggling to maintain sobriety for us not to realize something's going on. Sure, sure. So it's the time that we work together, plus the education, the support, the lack of judgment. There's been so few times where we've been surprised by a toxicology at birth. Really? Correctly. Yeah, because there's no reason for her. We know she's making a plan because her life is not in a place for this child to be raised in the way she wants. And sometimes that's an issue of sobriety, which is a really brave decision to make that I'm struggling with my sobriety. This child deserves somebody who's in a better place than I am right now. And that's part of her motivation. And that's okay. I want to ask about, you know, everyone seems to want an infant or a newborn. What is, what are the challenges you, you, you face adopting, let's say an older child? You know, and I hate to compare it to dogs, but everybody wants a puppy. Nobody wants an older dog. Yet during the pandemic, that changed. But that's a different show. Um, what what are the different challenges? Because I always think I would, yes, as much as I would love to have an infant, I'd be really happy with a three-year-old or a four-year-old. You know what I mean? Someone who can already communicate. What are the different but that's because yeah. you've had the experience of having an infant. So right. you're a little more open right. than, than some people are. Right. Yet, you know, you run into the, you know, you could potentially be dealing with trauma. You could potentially be, you know, with learning issues. I mean, Sabrina had a, her Sabrina's best friend. Yes, went, my godson. Went mm-hmm. through this. And sadly, the the kid's really troubled. Oh, it just... I mean, still to this day, he, she had, she wanted to adopt a baby. And so her social worker said, we don't have babies right now, but we have this three-year-old. And if you foster him, maybe it'll increase your chances of getting a baby. I think the social worker was a little shady if you ask me, but um, my friend was so eager to have the baby, she went along with it. And then so every time, and mind you, this child had been in 12 different homes. By the time he was three. By the time he was three. So every time she had to bring this child to the biological mother, you know, it was a situation where the social worker would say, we're getting close to giving you your baby. Just hang on to him a little longer. So she then grew an attachment to this child. So then she started to feel guilt like, I don't want to give him up and him going to a 14th home. And so she then was in this position like, do I really want the baby or can I care and give love to this one? And that's what ended up happening. But that's why I said the social worker was shady. She was definitely shady because that's, you already know that people are emotionally vulnerable. And I think she played on that. Well, and also, sadly, because of the trauma of the past, no matter what she did, and and, and Sabrina's friend was extremely proactive in getting him help and all these things, it was too late. I mean, that's, I think, what the fear is with people adopting older children. Yeah. Um, How long ago was this? Uh, Well, well, my um, 
friend passed away. This is going on uh, six years now. And um, no, I'm sorry, five years. And like Melissa was saying, the child was diagnosed with several different disorders, you know, with learning and different things. But my friend was very, like Melissa was saying, very proactive with addressing those issues. But as he got older and she consequently had passed away. um, Unexpectedly. My life is interesting. Um, My husband and I were designated as the parents, if anything happened to her, um, her brother was first. He decided he didn't want to. We were next in line. And then her mother, who was much older, her and her husband are in their 70s, they ended up getting the child. But because they were older and ill-equipped to help him, everything just spiraled. And so then he ended up back in the system because they couldn't handle him. It was just too much. How old was he at the time? Um, when she got when she got him as he was three, um, he was with her until 10 when she passed away. Now he's almost 17, but he the parents really tried in the, the time frame that my friend had passed in the past four years, they really tried to give them give this child everything and they just couldn't because they just weren't equipped. And like you said, it's a it's a major component that you have the resources of the counseling and you have to be so vigilant when you know that these children have issues. So it's a lot for to consider with an older child is I'm what we've experienced. So how complicated is it with an older child? When I say older, I mean not infant to find one that isn't coming. I hate to use the word damaged, but with so many issues because I would, you know, that's something that like I would consider and you want to know what you're getting into because you talk about, you know, it's so important that these that these kids find homes. Right. So when we talk about voluntary placements, it's more unusual to find somebody who's looking to voluntarily place their toddler. Um, so that was that sounds like this, I mean, the story you shared sounds more unusual while it does happen, I wouldn't want somebody to enter our domestic private adoption program and go through everything and wait for a toddler. Because usually once somebody is parenting, especially for that period of time, it's not voluntarily that the child winds up being placed for adoption. It usually is through the system because their love and attachment's too hard. Our bodies and our hearts are not meant to make the decision to place at that point. It's hard enough in the, as an infant. So we are talking about a child that's most likely coming into care from the dependency system. And those first few years are crucial in the way that the brain develops and attachment. Um, And so it depends on what that child has experienced during those first three years. And the story that you shared really is devastating to hear that there were 12 fractured attachments while that little brain was trying to form what it means to love and have relationships. And is this world safe? So our job as a caretaker for the, especially the first few years is to teach the child that they are safe. And part of that is having a stable relationship and connection that doesn't get fractured. So inherently right away, we're talking about a child whose primary caregiver that they were used to, even if it's only for a few months, winds up in the system and they have to get used to another. And every time there is a disruption of a placement, that gets more and more fractured and that stable and that that base that we are supposed to have them form gets a little more tenuous 
and the repair needs to be a little more in depth and it will be more challenging. So luckily, I think that our field has become much more hip to the needs of children, social, emotionally, and psychologically, um, as they go through the system and hopefully into an adoptive home. So the services that are available now come to your house multiple times a week. There's somebody designated for the parent to help them with skills. There's a clinician designated for the child. There's somebody that oversees the whole system as a unit and what the needs will be. And then there's people coming in specifically to make sure that if some if the child needs occupational therapy or speech therapy or those, those definite honed and targeted needs. And that support doesn't stop once the adoption happens. There's funding throughout 18 years to make sure that those services stay in place um, at a hub that is near you and often even comes to your location. So while we can't tell you that this child is going to come in without trauma, because inherently they will, we can tell you that not only are we going to arm you with the tools to training, we're going to arm you with the support system and the community around you to navigate it. So our job is to help with you, help the child reach their highest potential and redirect them so they become the child they're meant to be because that trajectory was thrown way sideways when they entered the system. So we find that there are challenges because that child is often going to try to disrupt the placement themselves just to prove to themselves, see, I shouldn't have opened my heart to them. I was right. I'm not worth it. And every time there's a disruption, they're gonna be more and more committed to prove it to themselves because it's easier to reject you than to open their heart and get rejected ultimately which is what they see the outcome being anyway. How, so. how, how easy is it for your agency to work with the state agencies? How, how I mean, because it was challenging for us. I know when we were going through the adoption process with Maya, we had to get all of her medical records and she was a preemie. So we literally paid for a file cabinet <laughs> full of documents, literally, to be sent to the social worker here. And I'm like, Joan, was that necessary? Did you find out what you needed to find out? It's like, now it's just paper waste. So how, how what's the challenge? That's what I'll say. Well, listen. Because I'm, I'm a little jaded. Yeah. I, understandably, and a lot of people are. And not only were you working with the big Department of Children and Family Services, you had two layers in each, you know, because you had each state. That sounds mm -hmm. so fun. Oh. So it was really fun. Right. So when I talk about VISTA having a program of foster care and foster to adopt, that's through a foster family agency, which is contracted by the county to train and approve people who want to foster. And then you're under our umbrella. And so we represent you to the county. We also oversee the child and their well-being and make sure you're getting the services you need and connecting you with those resources. But it's kind of like an extension from the county. It's one um, it's in one organization separated. So you get that more honed in unique experience that addresses your specific needs instead of having to just work with the county. So you have a county social worker, but then you're our, under our umbrella, which helps with advocacy and making sure your voice is heard and your needs are met. And so that's why foster family agencies wind up being a very, um, a very attractive way to go when people look to foster and foster to adopt. Well, I, I, I wish I was under your umbrella. I promise. <laughs> it would have made life a little easier. Two questions before we let you go, because I could ask you a million. Oh. Foster, foster to adopt. Mm -hmm. 
how complicated is that process? Because then again, you have a parent who's usually not in the best place. You have a kid. They don't want to necessarily give up their child. And suddenly they show up on your doorstep saying, you know, hypothetically, hey, I want my kid back. Um, So each case is so unique. Mm -hmm. Um, We definitely have situations where it just wasn't realistic to maintain a connection with the birth parent. Um, In those cases, more times than not, there's a family member who gets it. So that's, that's ideal in those situations. There are some situations where the biological parent is able to come around and have a healthy dynamic. And it sometimes it doesn't happen overnight and sometimes it doesn't happen at all, but we strive for it when it's right. Um, we don't have situations of people showing up on doorsteps in private adoption for sure, because they would never want to risk that uh, threatening that relationship. And in foster to adopt, you would only let them know where you live if you've built the trust that makes sense. I, I, I'm not saying yeah. literally, I'm using it sort of metaphorically. Right, right. And that's why we want to make sure that um, as much as we can, we create a dynamic that makes sense. If this is a person that's going to cross boundaries, be inappropriate, say things that undermine the adoption to the child, there won't be openness. Not in a direct way. Everything really, when it comes down to it, as much as we want to look at our best interests and all the adults involved, when it comes down to it, if there's a, a conflict in that, we're going to put the child's best interests first and foremost. So my last question, and I need a Cliff Notes answer because my brain's already going to explode from all this information. I think we need if, a part two, Melissa. I think so too, but I'm going to get I'm going to get this one out before we do our part two. <laughs> um, okay, big question, Cliff Notes. How would I start the process? Um, can I give you our website? Sure. Okay. <laughs> um, Vista Del Mar, spelled as you would think, .org slash adoption. Um, and go from there. Uh, if you are outside of California area, we can even direct you to a resource that we find ethical near you. We're happy to do that. Great. Dr. Jennifer Bliss, I cannot thank you enough. I definitely want to do a part two because... I think so many people have so many questions and, you know, it's been a part of my life from the sidelines watching Sabrina's journey. And it was a successful journey, even though during the teen years, Sabrina would potentially say, you know, not so successful. But then again, (laughs) I have a biological, I raised my son and I've had moments as teenagers thinking I'm going to fucking kill him. So, (laughs) and you're, and you're, and you're just beginning the journey and you're going to have twin teenagers. Yeah. Yeah. Good times for all involved. Jennifer (laughs) Bliss, thank you so, so much. 